We've been walking through this series on, on covenant relationships, and sort of the premise behind this has been that relationships at all levels just don't seem to work these days. And the reason they seem to struggle is because we don't treat relationships as God would have us to treat them. Um, inside the marriage relationship, uh, specifically, that phrase, till death do part, is only just a slogan for many of us. In other words, uh, I'll stay married to you as long as, and then you just, you need to fill in the blank there. We just don't treat relationships that God would have us, uh, the way that God would have us to treat them. As a matter of fact, in, in some recent articles that I were reading, um, several countries have already uh, put into legislations and are on the ready to adopt what they would call a marriage license um, agreement, which has in it uh, term limits. In other words, they want to treat marriage just like they would a hunting license or a fishing license, and you'd have to go down to the store and buy a hunting license and fishing license, and when that period runs out, in other words, you've got to reapply to have it. <laughs> now, some of you like that idea, don't you? I mean, like... But listen, I mean, we just have gotten down to the place that we just don't treat marriage, marriage, the covenant of marriage, in the way that God would have us to treat it. Now, you know, the Philippines, um, and, and they've even looked at term limits like two years. Yeah, two years. The, the Philippines have even gotten a name for it, and they call it um, the renewable marriage license. And they want to treat it just like a passport. And they say because the divorce rate is very high, the government has come up with this really smart idea that if we offer this, the divorce rate will lo be lowered. <laughs> Go figure. I know, another smart idea. But with that thought in mind, I want you to write down a couple of definitions today that I think that are really important. We've been talking about covenant, and we've been talking about um, a contract, contractual relationships, and I want you to write down uh, these definitions because I think these are really helpful, and we're going we're gonna to try to paint a picture for you today. But a contract says this. A contract is when we protect our rights, protect our rights, and limit our responsibilities. A contract is when we protect our rights and limit our responsibilities. See, we want the benefits of a contractual relationship, but we don't necessarily want the responsibilities. Are you with me? In other words, we want the benefits of marriage, but we don't want the responsibilities that go along with being married. We want what we want when we want it. A contract says this, I want to know what you're bringing to the table. It's not about my responsibilities. It's what's the benefits that are in it for me. The expectations. The expectation is what are you bringing to the table? The covenant is just the opposite. Write this down. Gives up rights and assumes responsibilities. The covenant says gives up rights and assumes responsibilities. A covenant says this is what I'm bringing to the table. Regardless of what you're bringing to the table, regardless of what decision you make, this is what I'm bringing to the table. This is what I bring to the relationship, and it's not based on what you bring to the relationship. And if we're going to talk about a covenant relationship, we want to be able to go back and see what might be some characteristics of a covenant relationship. What are some things that they may look like? And what I want to do today is I want to take a couple of passages of Scripture, one from the Old Testament and one from the New, and, and there's just no way to cover everything. But I want to sort of paint a picture for you along the lines of what are some things that we might give up and what are some responsibilities that we might assume. 
what are some things that I might give up, some rights I might give up, and some responsibilities that I might assume. So let's start off in the book of Genesis. That's a good place to start in the book of beginnings, Genesis chapter 2. And uh, as you turn there, that's the first book that you'll find in the Bible if, you've, if you're not very familiar with the Bible. Genesis chapter 2, second chapter, and we're going to look over at verse 21. Uh, but believe it or not, the church wasn't the first institution that God created. It was the marriage, marriage relationship. Genesis chapter 2, and I want you to read along with me today, verse 21. And it says, so the Lord God calls man to fall into a deep sleep. Some of us haven't recovered from that sleep, right guys? While the man slept, the Lord God took out one of man's ribs and closed up the, the opening. How was man formed? Does anybody remember? Dust. Thank God, just it was there. Dust. And then he breathed breath into his nostrils. And then how was woman formed? God had to do surgery. Remember this. I'm not saying anything smart. Remember a covenant. Remember what the definition of a covenant is? To cut to the point of shedding of blood. Remember here, God removes a rib to create Eve. He did surgery on Adam, took out a rib, and then closed him up. Verse 22, and then the Lord God made a woman from the rib. That's a pretty good deal there, huh? He brought her out to the, he brought her to the man at last. There's an exclamation point there. At last, he exclaimed, this one is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh, and she will be called woman because she was taken from me. And notice this in verse 24. This explains why, talk about this in a little bit, a man would leave his father and mother and be joined with his wife, and the two be united as one. Now the man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Can you imagine what it would have been like to have been the only person living on earth at that time. So here's Adam, and, and he would commune, and he would relate with God. Doesn't have a helpmate. But I'm just glad he didn't leave him long without a helpmate, that he created a helpmate for Adam himself, a companion. And this is what I want you to see really quickly, that marriage wasn't created for convenience, nor was it created by culture, but it was instituted by God. And the covenant of marriage, in that covenant of marriage, Adam had to give up something. And I want to give you a few things really quickly that we'll find that Adam gave up in this passage of Scripture. Number one, first of all, he gave up the right of priority. All of a sudden, it wasn't just about Adam. All of a sudden, there was somebody else involved in the picture. And when we get married, what we're saying is that I'm establishing a new earthly priority. And what does it say? When I, when I leave my father and mother, the dearest relationships that I have until that point, I am leaving them for you. And for a covenant of marriage to work, it has to be a matter of priority. See, you wonder why some of us are in conflict today. It's because you're still holding on to past priorities. You've not yet left your family of origin. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You're still struggling with the relationships because your spouse is not the priority. Something else is the priority in your life. It's not your spouse. How many of us are struggling because you've not yet established that new priority? And in the same way our, for our relationship with God to work, guess who has to be first? 
All of a sudden, it's not just about me and my wants and my needs. God wants to be first. He doesn't want to be a part of the, the list. He doesn't want to be number two or number three, but he wants to be what? Number one. Number one. And he wants us to put him first because he puts us first. And there's a difference between saying that I'm putting God first and putting him first because when we put God first, it has a way of rearranging our priorities. Are you with me? Because if he were our first priority, guess who we would spend time with the moment we got up in the morning? Guess who we would spend time more time with if he were our priority? You know, there's a difference between saying that our spouse is our priority and them truly being our priority. How many of us would say that our spouse is our priority, yet they're not necessarily the priority? If they're our priority, we would demonstrate that in how we lived. But our actions always don't demonstrate that, do they? Sometimes hunting gets in the way, doesn't it, guys? What's everybody laughing about? Sometimes fishing gets in the way, doesn't it? Sometimes shopping gets in the way, or sometimes baseball gets in the way, or sometimes football gets in the way. Sometimes there's other things that get in the way that are the true priority in our lives. But priority is a key to a covenant relationship. We just don't need to talk about it, but we need to demonstrate it. The second thing, the second right that we give up is the right of ownership. Look at verse 24. And the two are united into one. No more this is mine, and that's mine, but it's ours. It's ours. Everything that I have belongs to you, not just the finances, not just, but also in my time and possessions. Everything that I have, it goes from being mine to ours. I want you to turn over to a passage of Scripture if you can move fast enough, if you know enough about God's Word. Turn over to 1 Corinthians in the New Testament, and let's read a passage of Scripture that I think that the men will really identify with today in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 4. And let's just see what Paul had to say in reference to ownership. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 4. And this is what Paul said when he was talking about marriage. He said this, The wives should give authority over their body to the husbands. Now, we brought some stickers that you can put up on your refrigerator. Uh, guys, they're in the... just, And we like to hear that, don't we? It says, The wife gives authority over her body to their husband. And it goes on to say, The husband gives authority over his body to the wife, which the husband said, Well, she can have all she wants. But the secret of this principle of ownership isn't about what you demand or what you hold on to, but it's in what you're willing to give away. I see that's the secret of ownership, the principle of ownership. Giving up, I give up ownership. I give up the right of ownership. It's not about me. It's about you. And the only way that we can give up ownership is to say, everything that I have, I give to you. There's no strings attached. I mean, how many times are we good, uh, good about giving up something as long as we get something in return? I mean, you don't mind giving up ownership. In other words, um, you don't mind allowing your husband to go do this as long as he does this for you. You don't mind if your wife does this as long as, as, long as uh, she'll do this for you. But ownership says, no, it's not, about, it's, not about you. it's not about you. It's not about getting something in return, but I give up my right of ownership. 
And what happens when the expectation isn't met? I mean, if, if you've given up ownership and the expectation that you get something in return is there, what happens when that expectation isn't met? It's not necessarily about ownership, then it's about manipulation because the only reason that you're doing something is to get something in return. But a covenant relationship says you're willing to give up ownership. Ownership. Some of you guys are married and you've probably practiced this and I don't know how you practice it. You've got a husband and a wife that both work in the home and as a result, you've got his account and her accounts. I don't know how that works. I don't know how you can do life from that perspective because that is his and that is hers. This is mine and that is yours. If it works for you, I guess it works for you, but I don't know how that necessarily works because if it were me, I would go, this is mine and that's yours. I spend my money on what I want to spend my money on. You spend your money on what you want to spend your money on. Ownership, willing to give it away. The right of ownership. The third thing, willing to give up the right of privacy. Verse 25, it says, Now the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. In other words, I want to give to you freely and unhindered access to every part of my life. There is no secret side. There's nothing that's hidden. And in a covenant relationship, it says that I'm free to share with you anything and everything that's going on in my life. There is nothing that's being held back, and I'm not afraid. There is no fear of retribution. A covenant marriage says that my life is an open book to you. There's nothing that's hidden. There's an openness that leads to confidence that ends with security in the relationship. And isn't that the type of relationship that Jesus desires to have with us? I mean, in John chapter 15, and this is sort of me talking, but Jesus said, listen, I've given you every part of me. Everything I've given because I I, I want you to know me and I want to know you. And so in turn, I've opened up my whole life to you in a covenant relationship. So we've got to give up rights of priority. We've got to give up rights of ownership and we've got to give up rights of privacy. But there are also some things that we acquire, that we assume, some responsibilities that we assume in the covenant relationship. And I want you to turn over to a passage of Scripture in the New Testament in Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. And I want to look at a couple things. Some people consider this to be the strongest passage of Scripture in reference to marriage. But in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul Uh, lists for us some things, and I want to read that with you here very carefully today. Ephesians chapter 5 in the New Testament. This is what Paul said in in that chapter 5, beginning at verse 22. We're going to come back to 21 because I believe it's it's sort of the foundation for all of this we're we're about to read. But let's start here at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22, and this is what he says. Thinking in reference to painting a picture of responsibilities that we assume. For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For a husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of his body, the church. And as the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands in everything. Sounds pretty difficult until you read what he goes on to say. For husbands, this means you love your wives just as Christ loved the church. And he gave up his life for her. You know, a wife loving us and submitting to us is a whole lot easier when it's happening on the other side. When it's happening. 
When you've got a husband that's willing to sacrifice his life, anyway. Verse 26 says to make her holy, and I want you to sort of put a circle around that because we're going to come back to it in a second. To make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word, he did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. In the same way, verse 28, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. No one hates his own body but feeds and cares for it, just as Christ cares for the church. And we are members of his body. As the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and join to his wife, and the two are united into one. That sounds sort of familiar, doesn't it? 32, this is a great mystery, but it is also an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. In other words, the best example that we have for marriage is Christ and his, how he treats the church and how the church responds to him. In verse 33, so again I say, each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Now, there are a lot of things that I can pick up from this text, and we could spend years here. But I want to just mention three things that I, I want to take out of this in reference to painting a picture of assuming responsibility. And this is what it says. Number one, love unconditionally. Number one, love unconditionally. It's easy to love a spouse when they're lovely. But what happens when they're not lovely? What happens when they're difficult? How do you respond? And what we're saying in a covenant relationship is this, is I assume, assume the responsibility to love as Christ loved me. Do you think that Christ sees our inconsistencies and our failures and our foolishness? Yet how does he respond to us? I mean, how does he respond to us? I'll tell you. He sees us exactly where we are. And the Bible tells us that he still loves us. As a matter of fact, Paul said there's nothing can separate us from God's love. And I don't care what issue or what it is that, that you might be dealing with, it says that nothing can separate us from his love. Jesus didn't come for the people that had it all together, but for those of us that don't have it all together. And he still loves us. And he loves us unconditionally. And you know when love counts the most? when it doesn't make any sense. That's when it counts the most. When all of a sudden you make a choice to choose to love someone when it just doesn't make any sense. That counts, baby. That's big time. It's easy to love people when they love us back, but how do we love those who don't love us back? If we want to experience God's type of power in a relationship, we've got to be willing to love as God intended us to love. And you know what? When you love that way, it's going to be messy, and it's going to be dirty, and there's going to be an awful lot of tension that's involved. But to love unconditionally. I didn't say this type of love was popular, but if we intend to experience God's type results, we've got to be willing to love as God, God intended us to love. See, in a contract, both parties need to agree. In a contract, both parties to agree. You know, and if you don't hold up to your end of the deal, all of a sudden I'm released from my end of the deal. But a covenant relationship says that I choose to respond faithfully regardless if my partner responds faithfully 
or not. It's about my choice. It's not about the other person's actions. It's a decision that I've made and I choose to remain faithful till death do part. I didn't say it was popular, but it's God's. And there are people here that say, but you just don't understand. And guys, I understand that. There's a lot of stuff that I don't understand. And there's a lot of tensions in the scripture that I don't understand. But this is what I know that when we choose to love as God intended us to love, there's a blessing that comes along with that. And there are some of you that are here today that have experienced divorce or some of you that have been wronged and you're hearing this whole thing out of all your pain and all your suffering. And you may even be in the midst of divorce right now and, and you're struggling with this. And listen, the only thing I can tell you is to go before the Lord. I know what the scripture talks about in reference to allowances for divorce. I know exactly what it says in reference to sexual immorality and some other things that are listed there. But I also know what the scripture says in the Old Testament when it says God hates divorce. And why do you think God hates his divorce? Because it's not his first plan. But if you struggled with that, go before him. And you know what? God still sees us right where we are. And the Bible teaches us and tells us that there's nothing that separates us, that there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Loving unconditionally. It's difficult. And for those of you that are listening to the condemnation of Satan, let me tell you what. The Bible teaches us that he's a deceiver and that he's an adversary. And you take your ears away from his voice. And don't you dare listen to him. He's a liar. And he's been deceiving people from the beginning of time. Love unconditionally. That's a right that you, that's something you assume. You pick it up. In a covenant relationship, you say, this is what a picture looks like, and that picture looks like number one of those, one of those strokes that I'm going to make is I want to love unconditionally. The second thing, another responsibility we assume in the covenant relationship is to honor respectfully. Honor respectfully. Honor says, I will respect you because you are one of God's creation. I will show you honor. The word simply means to put value on it. That even when you may not think about value, that you will place value on it. When I was working through this, I was, I was thinking about, um, there's an old poem, a song. I, I, a lot of different people have, have used it over the years. But I was thinking about that old song, The Touch of the Master's Hand. There was a, there was a guy that was an auction house. And Linda, you've probably heard it, where the guy takes an old violin, and it's an old dirty and shattered and nasty looking, and he holds it up, and he's trying to get a bid. And he said, will somebody give me a dollar? Will somebody give me two dollars? What about, what about three? Nobody wants to take it. And the old fella got up from the back of the crowd and he, and he walked up front and he took that violin and he took that bow and he began to play. And he played these melodies, beautiful melodies. And he went back and, and he sat down at his seat and, and all of a sudden he held it up and he said, will somebody give me a thousand? And here's a bid. Will somebody give me two? Here's a, and then the, it was amazing. I mean, here's a violin. Nobody would give anything for it. And then all of a sudden, the value rose tremendously. And what was it? It was the touch of the master's hand. And there's a lot of value in that. We had the opportunity to add value. What was the phrase that I wanted you to remember a little bit earlier? Is to make her holy. 
What does it mean to be holy? Does it mean to be perfect? No, it doesn't mean to be perfect. It means to be set apart. In our house, we've got the everyday silverware. You guys have got that. You know this is silverware you use every day. This is the silverware you take to the men's fellowship on a Friday night when the guys are going to get together and they're going to try to build the see who brings the biggest steak. You know what I'm, you know what I'm saying? That's the, that's the silverware that you can take with you. But then we've got other silverware that's been set apart. And it's over in another drawer. And we only take it out at special occasions. Miss, Miss Louise, you've got that special silverware that you only take, take out. At, and it was probably something that was left down from your family, your mother, your mother's mother. And you keep it for special occasions. And when that special occasion comes, you pull it out. And you address that table up as best as you can. Because it's special. I want to say this. But you know this to be true. For centuries, men have devalued women. Devalued women. In many countries today, they're still devalued. In most cultures, in many cultures, the attitudes still exist. And women have been misused, they've been mistreated. But all of a sudden today, that in our culture, that's been reversed, hasn't it? I don't know when the last time you've looked at TV and, and looked at the main characters and see how men are treated and abused these days. They're made to look fragile. They're made to look weak. They're made to look incompetent. They're made to look like jerks, foolish and ignorant. You know, whatever happened to John Walton on today's TV sitcoms? Are you with me? What happened to the Charles Ingalls on today's TV sitcoms? You don't see them, do you? Um... It's almost like we've totally reversed things. Totally reversed things. Just on a side note, I don't know if I told you guys this or not. You know, I wonder if Daniel Boone would have been that type of a person. I wonder if he was a respectable man. I found out the other day doing some heritage work that I have an uncle that supposedly was the one that married Daniel Boone to his wife. And, uh, and I thought, well, isn't that very interesting? He was a Revolutionary War soldier. And some documents, some history documents say that he was the one that Daniel Boone would escort him around as he would go from place to place. He was supposedly a Methodist pastor and would go around preaching the gospel and Daniel would escort him from place to place to make sure that he was protected. It was very interesting. But it's amazing how we've reversed culture today. It used to be that we mistreated women and now it's all of a sudden like we're going to make the guy to look like a fool. Like we're trying to make up with all the years of abuse by reversing the roles and devaluing men and downplaying the role that we play in society and in our homes. Talking about God's standard, I want you to turn over just a little bit to 1 Peter chapter 3. I want to read something to you. As we talk about, sometimes we get confused about the responsibilities, and I want you to hear what it says here in this passage of Scripture in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 5 and 6 in reference to some responsibilities. And this is, this is what it says. This is how the holy women, now if you want to be a holy woman, didn't say a holy roller, but if you want to be a holy woman, look at what it says. This is how the holy women of old made themselves beautiful. Now, before we even go there, I want you to stop and everybody look at me just for one second. What determines a woman's beauty today? I want ladies to answer me. Outward appearance. outward appearance. Be honest. Don't tell me what I want to hear. Tell me what. Outward appearance. What else? Outward 
size, personality. What else determines a woman's value and her, her worth in society today with her, um, her beauty? Somebody else. Position. Position. Number of children. What else? What kind of purse? You have? What kind of purse? <laughs> well, let me see your purse. <laughs> what determines a woman's beauty? I mean, come on, guys. What else? What determines a woman's beauty? Clothes, what you wear. What'd you say, Wes? If she hunts. If she hunts. <laughs> if she's willing to pick up chicken eggs and that's right. Pull weeds. That's right. That's right. We're getting really honest very quick. We have our inside of our culture what determines the beauty and value of a woman. But look at what it says here. They trusted God and accepted the authority of their husbands. This is how the holy women of old made themselves beautiful. They trusted God and accept the authority, accepted the authority of their husbands. For instance, Sarah obeyed her husband Abraham and called him her master. You are her daughters when you do what is right without fear of what your husband not, might do. Now listen, this is really a key thing here. Because Abraham wasn't always an honest guy, was he? If you know anything about the story of Abraham, there were some inconsistencies in Abraham's life. Even though he had a relationship with the Lord and he lived by faith, there were a couple times in his life that he acted out of fear. And as a result of that, what took place was that he lied about his relationship with his wife, Sarah. He said, she's my sister. Instead of she's my spouse, my wife. <laughs> and I want you to listen. Sarah decided to call him um, not what he was, but what he could be. See, she still listed him and called him master or Lord. Now, she could have just reached out and said, he's a liar. He's dishonest. But that's not what she chose to say about him. She, choose, she, she chose to see him for what he could become instead of for what he was. And she intentionally praised him and she called him Lord. And listen, Sarah ended up playing a huge role in what Abraham ended up being because she refused to remind him of the foolishness and she sought to speak praise into him. She honored him even when he wasn't honorable. Do you hear that? Husbands reversed that just a little bit. She honored him even when she, he wasn't honorable. She called him out for what he could be instead of what he was. And look at what happens in, there next in verse 7. In the same way, you husbands, you must honor your wives. Treat your wife with understanding, respect as you live together. She may be weaker than you are. But she is your equal partner in God's gift of new life. And God says, why are you treating her of lesser value when she's valued by me, when she's my creation? Honor and respect. And what's the fallout for not treating her right? Look at what it says there. Treat her as you should, so your prayers will not be hindered. That word hindered actually means to be cut off. wonder why sometimes you feel like your relationship with the Lord is struggling, why you're struggling. 
take this to heart. It's difficult to pray with somebody when you're not being treated right or when you're not treating them right. But this isn't just in reference to our spouses. This is with anyone, isn't it? We need to do a better job at honoring and respecting. Matter of fact, it was respect was the whole key behind our last month's children in our Kidmo classes. That was what they talked about. And so if you're a parent, you've probably got one of those sheets and had an opportunity to talk about respect all last month, about a respecting authority and respecting one another. So in talking about bringing ourselves to a God level in relationship, we've talked about painting a picture, assuming the responsibility of loving unconditionally. I mean, anybody can love chocolate. Anybody can love going to the movies. But loving unconditionally is just a little bit different, isn't it? How do we love the, the sinner or the person that's hurt us? To demonstrate honor and respect and then finally, quickly submit mutually. Submission isn't something that we can demand. It's something that we give. And the key passage, I believe, to Ephesians chapter 5, 22 is what we find uh, in following is, is we find it in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, because this is what it says. We submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. It's a whole lot easier to put yourself in submit when, first of all, you're submitted to Christ. When it's not my will, but your will be done, Lord. It's a whole lot easier to submit ourselves mutually towards one another when, we're, when we are submitted in reverence to Christ. But, you know, these characteristics, this picture that we've painted, just aren't a picture of our relationship with one another, but they're also a picture of our relationship with, with Christ. My question today is this. As you paint the picture of your marriage relationship, if you're married today, what kind of picture do you want to paint? Do you want to paint the, the covenant-type picture, or do you want to take, paint the type of picture that is illustrated by contract? Do you want to, to give away your rights and assume responsibilities, or do you want to, to limit your responsibilities? How do you want it to look? But not only in the midst of that, what kind of picture do you want to paint in reference to your relationship with the Lord? See, because one day, this is what we know. Every one of us are going to tell a story. There's a story that's going to be told of our lives. And one day, we're going to have an opportunity to tell that story, or somebody else is going to have an opportunity to tell that story. And what will determine the outcome of that story? Decisions that we make on an everyday basis. Listen to this in reference. See, if God isn't number one in our lives, we can't have a relationship. If he's not number one, you won't have a relationship. What you'll have is religion. And religion is what messes, up, messes us up every time, isn't it? And it was what Jesus said in Matthew 7 when he said, Not every man that crieth, Lord, Lord, will enter the gates of heaven, but only he that does the will of my Father. Tying this in to our relationship with God, listen to what it says. When we give Jesus priority and we give him right to ownership of our lives, when we come to the place of saying, not my will, Lord, but yours, not my stuff, but your stuff. It's not my plan, Lord, but it's your plan. And in my life, there is nothing hidden because there's no privacy. See, because God already knows everything anyway. He already knows everything. Um, yet in the midst of that, he still chooses to love us. 
We just got to make a decision whether or not we're going to receive God's gift of unconditional love and in turn respond to him by honoring him and submitting our lives to him, which leads to that relationship. So as we close today, what kind of paint, picture do you want to paint? Every one of us has a paintbrush in our hand and we're drawing. We're painting a picture. You've got to make a choice of what picture you want to paint. Remember what we talked about last week. We've said it before. Our horizontal relationships affect our vertical relationship. Our vertical relationship affects our horizontal relationships. And you know what? For us to grow, there's always going to be tensions involved. We just have to make a choice whether or not we're going to choose to live as God intended us to live and treat our relationships as God intended us to treat them, or if we're going to still do it our own way. Would you bow with me today? Father, thank you for this day today and uh, for your word. Your word is what speaks to our hearts. Your, your word is what penetrates. It's not the telling of great stories, but the Holy Spirit speaks to us and reveals to us inconsistencies in our lives and areas that we're weak. And Father, we're immature. Father, I'm praying today that um, in the midst of talking about um, some, of the, some of the pictures of, of a covenant relationship that there may be a, a something that we've identified with that, Lord, there's a weakness. And, and based on Scripture, what I, what I would say that's important for us to do for those of us who are believers, to not just deny it, but, Father, to acknowledge that, that, uh, that weakness and to, and to go before you and ask forgiveness. And even if there's something, Father, within our lives that we might even need to go to a spouse or a friend and say, I'm sorry, I'm wrong. I was wrong. Give us strength to do that. Father, give us strength to paint the picture that you would have us to paint. Father, for those that are here that have a difficulty with what's been discussed, it all goes back to a relationship with you. It, we, can't, we can't live as you've intended us to live until we first have come, and under, uh, come under submission and submitted our life to you. So, Father, if there are those that are here today that don't know Jesus, this is my prayer that, Father, that they themselves would acknowledge the fact that, that they're in need and that their life is incomplete, that they're lost, and they're in need of a Savior, and that they recognize the fact that Jesus died on a cross for their sins, that they would come to the place of, of honoring and respecting what your word has to say and choosing to submit, Father, to you with their whole life, not just with part of it. And so if there's some here today that, that don't know you, Father, even today would they might say, I want to submit my life to Christ. If there's a person like that today, would they just come up to me afterwards and say, today I want to, I want to give my life to Jesus. Father, we value marriage here. We desire to, for heritage to be a place that is a place of hope. But Father, in the brokenness of a world in which we live, I also know that we deal with the reality of divorce. Father, there are no black sheep in this place. They're nothing but your children. 
for those that are struggling or have struggled or walking through those difficult times. Father, may we surround them with your, with your love. And Father, may we embrace them and encourage them in their faith. I pray that we would bring hope to this community. And as the songs that we sang earlier, that we would be a light into the nations, first starting off here. Help us to be reminded of the picture that you would desire to paint for our lives. And Father, for, for uh, the covenant relationships that you would desire for us to have. Let us hold tight. Thank you, Father, again for this day. And as we leave this place, my prayer and our prayer is that we would leave this place to make a difference. That we wouldn't so much just talk about what it's like to be a believer, but we would demonstrate that in our lives every day, that we would be a light. Father, you've set us on the edge of, of hell itself. You've set us right on the edge of, in, in inside of a place where there are many people that don't know you, many people that are moving into this area and don't know the love of Christ. May we be very intent, not just doing more church, but learning to be the church that you've called us to be. And in that, bring hope to this lost and dying world. I'm praying today for our elections that are coming up fast approaching. Um, Father, I pray that you would burn inside us um, the responsiveness to take on the responsibility, to assume the responsibility of, of, of voting our conscience, to go before you and ask for, ask for leadership and, and, Father, what we should do. But I pray that we would accept that responsibility and that we would be very bold in that and take up that responsibility that's been given to us. May we not complain about who's in office if we're not willing to go out and vote to make a difference. Send us out now, Father, to be your instruments of your peace. Allow us to touch the world that you've brought into our sphere of, of living. Bless us now as we go in Jesus' name.